devastating earthquake had just rocked Haiti when the president's cell phone rang. Haitian President René Preval had narrowly escaped being buried in rubble by a magnitude 7.0 earthquake in 2010, and reporter Jacqueline Charles had reached him on his personal phone. He recognized the number and immediately picked up. When are you coming, he asked her, meaning, we need you here. Welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. There's a reason President Bill Clinton has called Jacqueline Charles Haiti's ambassador to the world. She's one of the world's leading journalists on the subject of Haiti, a Caribbean correspondent for decades at the Miami Herald. She snuck secretly into the country last year after the assassination of the late Haitian president, Jovenel Moïse, and has written definitively about it. But for being one of Haiti's leading experts, she actually considers herself a child of the Caribbean. She was born in Turks and Caicos, the country where her mother fled from Haiti in the 1970s, where she was raised by a Cuban-American stepfather. And it was abruptly moving to the historically black neighborhood of, of Overtown that gave her a different sense of self. Today, we'll spend the hour with Jackie, talking about courage, country, and her role in telling the story of the Caribbean. My mother um, migrated to the Turks and Caicos. Um, her experience, she doesn't like for me to talk about it, but it's very similar to um, many Haitians who migrated to the United States. Um, in the early 70s. And so, you know, her trajectory was the Turks and Caicos. At that period, you had Haitians fleeing Haiti because of the Duvalier dictatorship. Some went to the Bahamas. In fact, Haitians were going to the Bahamas very early on in this process. Um, a lot of people don't realize, but, you know, the Turks and Caicos has a very interesting relationship with Haiti. Um, it was... Um, you know, Haiti was Miami for the Turks and Caicos. You know, huh. when people were sick, um, that's where they 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 went to the Turks and Caicos. But I very much do, yes, identify um, as Haitian with my Haitian roots. And and my mother herself says, "When did you become so Haitian?" Because <laughs> my my influence very early in life was probably was more Cuban than anything. My my stepfather, as I mentioned, he was, you know, in my life from the time I was three months old. Um, Spanish probably was my first language. I remember one of my first words was, you know, um, caramelo. Um, <laughs> candy, of course. Yeah. What is a what does a little Cuban kid learn first? But caramelo, candy. Exactly. And my stepfather um, very much um, fits his, his story is that of of Cubans, white Cuban. His his parents. Um, we're actually from Spain, went to Cuba. He was one of those individuals who supported Fidel. He believed in the vision. Um, as a matter of fact, when Fidel came into power, his daughter was in Miami at the time with her husband, who was a member of the military. Wow. She had the choice to go back to Cuba or to stay in exile in Miami. She chose to go um, to Cuba. My stepdad was among the Cubans whose properties were confiscated. Right. He fled Cuba and he lived with decades with a family that was divided because of um, Fidel. Um, he, like a lot of Cuban Americans, you know, did not envision ever wanting to go back. 
to Cuba, but on his deathbed, the only thing he wanted was to see Cuba for one last time. So that was very much my, you know, influence and, and, and listening to this. So, you know, I grew up in a household where I had two parents who fled dictatorships and that really does shape your, um, your vision, your views. My, my mom, because of discrimination that she endured as a Haitian migrant in an English speaking island, um, she didn't necessarily want me to be identified as Haitian or to identify as Haitian. But one of the things that she was doing, unbeknownst to her, was that she was introducing me very much to my my Haitian roots. I was going to Haiti, I always say, before I was even born. Um, after I was born, I was constantly in Haiti. I know all of my my Haitian parents, grandparents, my family members. Um, that was very much part of my of my growing up, that her cultural influence you know i mean she raised me haitian without even thinking about it because it's what she knew it's what her background was of course and you're you're growing up in this place that like you said is very much like the miami is that it was the um uh it was a it was a a land of sanctuary um and and i imagine there's a little bit of feeling of displacement for your mom i totally get that the idea that you're in an english-speaking place and you are creole-speaking uh, and and uh, I, I think about my own parents who were in Miami and they're in an English speaking place and they're speaking Spanish and it, everything feels foreign and you try to grab onto the things that you're that you're used to. Can you what was that like growing up in a, in a place where where uh, growing up in, in Turks and Caicos where, you know, your mom is trying to hold on to pieces of her culture and trying to teach you about pieces of that culture. Uh, and you're, you know, you're just a kid. So you're, you're kind of growing up in this, in this new place, you know, in this place that is that that's what your home is like. I mean, I have to tell you, um, you know, Haitian kids, whether they were growing up in Miami or the Turks and Caicos or the Bahamas, we always have had a tough time. Um, you're seen as a pariah. You're, you're subjected to discrimination. Um, people call you names. You don't really, you know, fit in. Um, anywhere. I tell people that um, kids who are bicultural, their experience isn't really that much different from kids who are biracial. The only difference is is when you're biracial, people automatically see it uh, in most times. But when you're bicultural, you're always in this sort of push-pull. I have always asserted the fact that I am Haitian. I've always embraced it. I've always um, let everybody know, even when people on my non-Haitian side will say, why do you have to tell people you're Haitian? You're, you're not Haitian. You're not this. You're in terms of always sweeping it, I find myself constantly having to also educate them um, about, about Haiti, about its history and what it means. And just, you know, a few months ago, I sent a close relative of mine who was getting into an argument with um, an employee who was Dominican. I sent a book, um, Edwidge Stuntikat's book, you know, The Farming of Bones, hmm. because I felt that she needed to better understand this, 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 this tension, this history between Haitians and Dominicans so she could better understand this, you know, conflict that she was having, you know, within her employees and why certain things were objectionable. And 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 that's what you find in the Caribbean is that and, and, and Jamaicans will tell you that they have this experience in, in the Cayman Islands. Guyanese have this experience in, in, in Trinidad. Um, we may all be black, but you know, within that blackness, there there are sort of 
different stages or a pecking order or things. So you, so you are constantly trying to, to teach and to educate. And so, but I am proud and I, I embrace the fact that, that I'm a Turks Islander and I'm a Haitian Turks Islander. I mean, it's funny, people beat up on me on Twitter all the time because they think they know me and they don't know me and they don't know my experience. Um, but being from the English speaking Caribbean, it allows me to to identify with issues that Jamaicans or, you know, Canadians or people from Antigua that that they may be undergoing or dealing with because I've lived it in some way. But also being um, a it, helps Haitian, to be, it helps to be a little bit of an outsider sometimes to to uh, to to have a foot in different kinds of cultures to be able to really appreciate step back and see the whole. Exactly, exactly. And I, and what I've realized and what I tell people is that, you know, we really are, our problems are the same. They're just on different scales. I mean, Haiti today has a gang problem, but so does Jamaica. Um, you know, so does Trinidad. You know, again, it's not to the level that we're seeing in Haiti, but it's there. We have an issue in terms of poverty in Haiti. So does Jamaica, the countries. I mean, again, it's a scale. We're talking about a country of 12 million versus a country, you know, of, of, of 300,000 or 3 million. You know, Dominicans also get on boats and they leave. They just don't wash up in, in Florida. They usually end up in, you know, Puerto Rico or the Eastern Caribbean. So this is how I also approach my job and my reporting as a Caribbean correspondent. You know, where there are opportunities to show that we are more alike than we're different. Mm -hmm. I like to seize on that because I think, you know, what I find is that everybody wants to talk about the Haiti of 1804. Um, it was a glorious history and they embrace it, but very few people, um, especially in the English speaking Caribbean or the non you know, French speaking Caribbean wants to talk about the Haiti of today and want to address it today. So wherever I find an opportunity to say we need to confront it, we need to discuss it. That's what I move toward. Jackie, you, you, I know you came to the U.S. Uh, when you were when you were a, a little kid, but I know you you lived for for a year in Haiti. Um, what do you can you talk to me a little bit about what it was like early on? Like, because I know you you lived in Overtown when you were I want to say it was seven or so. Tell me a little bit about what that was like. What did you learn about identity, about yourself, about culture, about nationalities, even at such a young age with you know, your father being, or your stepfather being Cuban-American, your father being, you know, from a prominent family in, in Turks and Caicos, and your mom being Haitian, and moving to different places. You know, what was that like for you? Like, how did that shape you? Well, it's cool. It's interesting, because when I think about that time in Haiti, there's always two things that stand out. One was, um, I was supposed to be the, the translator in the house, you know, my stepfather didn't speak French. Oh, I know this um, role. As a, as a child of immigrants, I know this role well. Yeah, and, and and the folks in the house didn't speak English, so it was Creole. So because I spoke Spanish and I spoke Creole, I'm the one that's supposed to be translating back and forth. And so I remember my stepdad, who always spoke to me in Spanish, and he's talking to me, and I know what he's saying, and I'm going to translate. And I start just speaking in Creole. And that's I remember my mother hitting the panic button because by now we've been in Haiti for a year, my mom um married she was trying to get a u.s visa to to come to the united states little did i know it was to migrate i thought she was just trying to come on her honeymoon um <laughs> <laughs> and so when she saw that i had you know i lost my english she went into a straight panic and she oh, says wow. okay we you know we need to get out of here and, and and so that's when we you know we left and we went back to we went back to Turks and Caicos. Um, the other incident that I remember, um, and maybe this was a foreshadowing of my life to come, because I have to tell you, I 
Yeah, I always said I was going to be a doctor. I mean, that you know, every Haitian kid, this is what you're told. If you're if you're a boy, you're going to be a priest or an engineer or a doctor. If you are a girl, you're going to be a doctor. And so um, I remember being five years old and and being in Haiti in Cape Haitian and being at my 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 aunt's house in in, in Cape and and interesting enough, you know, um, my 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 aunt's husband again is the brother of a. I won't say, but very famous, you know, Haitian. And at the time, though, I I, I had no idea and I had not put two and two together. But mm -hmm. I'm standing there and um, there's an election happening and there's a guy that's campaigning and his name is, you know, Leouge, the red one. And I just remember standing at the door and I'm just repeating what the people are saying. And I'm just saying, Leouge, Leouge. And my mother like snatches me out oh. of the door and says, don't you ever, ever say anything about politics. Don't you ever, ever talk about politics. I mean, I literally was reprimanded wow. because I was just standing there and repeating this. And this was during the dictatorship. So, well, of course, I like, I mean, like, you know, I can speak with my parents, my parents as well. You know, you come from a place like the reason they fled. I mean, people say economics, but the politics is what's behind it. The reason people flee is because they're in fear of their lives. So, uh, standing on one side or the other of a political party, uh, can mean the difference between life and death. And I can imagine your mom hearing that coming out of your mouth, like the hair on the back of her neck must have stood up, you know? Exactly. So you're raised to to sort of know your role, to fear, um, to fear politics, and you were raised in, in fear. Hmm. So it is quite ironic that um, between the influence between my mother and my stepfather, um, that I'm a journalist, you know, these, the freedom of the press is something that they were denied, um, in their respective countries. And, um, you know, and it was something that landed people with, with death. And so the fact today that, that I'm opposite, I think that, and it's taken my mom a long time to, to embrace, um, my my job and i've kind of lived in denial that she doesn't really know what i do or understand oh, wow. but now whatsapp has changed that because she's now getting the she's no longer just getting what i want her to know about what's happening in the country she's you know she's hearing it on whatsapp and and so that fear is being you know it's being reignited and for her only this time you know it's her daughter that's on the front lines still to come jacqueline charles tells us about how she was introduced to Miami's slippery relationship with race when she moved from Turks and Caicos as a child. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. We've been speaking to Jacqueline Charles, whose reporting on Haiti and the Caribbean has been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. If you missed any part of our conversation, all Sundial episodes are available on our podcast. Jackie's been reflecting on how being raised in Turks and Caicos and later Miami shaped her. Let's get back to that conversation. I was introduced to racism in the United States. Uh, you know, my, my stepfather was white and Cuban. My mom was black and Haitian. So they were in an interracial marriage. That was no big deal when I was in Turks and Caicos, even though my stepfather was one of only two white guys on an an entire island and the only Spanish wow. speaker on wow. this entire island. Nobody made a big deal about it. It, huh. it didn't stand out. But when I moved to the U.S., all of a sudden, race became an issue that was, you know, that was that was new for me. 
um, how that did that, was how different. Did, how did that manifest itself? Like you say, it's new for you. Like, uh, was it uncomfortable? And in, in, in what ways? Kids are cruel. I yeah. mean, kids are cruel. You know, my, my stepfather, we would go out. He didn't say, this is my stepdaughter. He's like, it's a niha. Period. You know, no explanation. None That's needed. Yeah. And so, you know, and so people are looking at him and saying, but wait a minute, this dark skinned girl, this white guy, how is she your daughter? You know, so um, or people would say to me, you know, oh, you look Haitian. And I didn't know what looking Haitian looked like because my mother is lighter skin. And my my father, who isn't Haitian, is the one that's dark skin. And I'm like, but my dad isn't Haitian. and I look like my father. So what do you mean? What looks what what, what which looks like Haitian. I mean, you have to remember Miami was a period um, where, you know, you had kids, uh, you know, kids of Haitian descent who were committing suicide mm. because um, they were ostracized because of the fact that they were Haitian. They were called names. They were beaten up upon. Um, these were tough times in Miami. But I think for Haitian youngsters today, it's, it's different. And I remember the turning point. It was Wyclef Jean getting on the stage wrapped in the Haitian flag. Oh, wow. And all of a sudden, you know, kids were like, oh, I'm Haitian and I'm proud. And it, it makes me smile today when I see, um, you know, young people who are of Haitian descent. They don't speak Creole. They were born here. They may be a second generation Haitian American. They know nothing about Haiti, but they embrace the fact. They tell you that they're Haitian and they're very proud of of, of, of their Haitian identity. And that's a long, long way from, you know, from where we've come from, where I know, you know, people today who are saying I'm Haitian, but I remember when I went to school with them, they were Canadian, they were, there was anything huh. and everything but Haitian. So for the Haitians um, community itself, uh, in, in the 50 years that it has been in South Florida, there has been a huge change in terms of how Haitians view themselves and their acceptance. And um, I, I would joke to my friends when we go to the mall and they'll say something Creole. I said, you better don't say anything Creole. That person might be Haitian. And sure enough, yeah, they're Haitian. They understand <laughs> what you're saying. Whereas before, you know, you you know, we were few and far between. So in that sense, but you're always going to have the, you know, in terms of the ethnic tensions, in terms of African-Americans versus Caribbean Blacks and, you know, and, and Caribbean Blacks and, you know, their view um, and I, you know, I always get into a debate with my friends about this, but I always say to people, when you grow up in a black country and you see um, leaders in wealth and it looks like you, your your issues get a little bit different. Hmm. You know, we all had slavery. It was cruel. Um, but, you know, you're fighting more of a colorism sometimes or um, a social class issue as opposed to a black and white issue. Right, right. I, I want to talk to you about uh, from moving beyond identity. You get to a place where you know you're you're kind of growing up in this ideal of what your your Haitian family wants. You know you're going to be a doctor, and one day you're visited at your junior high by a Herald executive that changed your path. Apparently, um, if I'm remembering correctly, there was a presentation and no one was asking questions, and so you raised your hand because you didn't want them to think that that they were coming to a class with a bunch of kids who 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 you know who weren't smart or or didn't. Tell, tell me about that and how that really that changed the trajectory of your life. I was at an inner city high school with um, black and Latino kids. Name Booker drop T. that Washington. school? <laughs> Booker T. Washington at the time it was junior high. Okay. Um, I was in the gifted program. Um, the late Mrs. Wynn. 
um, Evelyn Wynn. He, she was a librarian, but she was also the gifted teacher. And oh. she invited it's always, Tom. It's always a librarian, isn't it? Like, like so <laughs> much, so much of people who would go into literature and writing, and people who would appreciate the arts. It's, it's always some special teacher or librarian that really changes the path. Yeah. So she, you know, and I would say I've always been blessed by having teachers who are always looking out for me. And she invited John Brecher, who was executive editor at the Miami Herald at the time, and his wife, Dorothy Gady. Um, they, she was a columnist. And yeah, he came and talked to us about newspapers. And we'd done a lot of work and research, spent a couple of weeks. And he says, OK, are there any questions? And nobody asked any questions. And I just didn't want him to, to think that we were just a bunch of dumb inner city kids. Um, at the time, there was a lot of talk about this deficiency list in terms of schools and students, you know, the, the failing school list. Uh, so, yeah, I asked questions. He assumed that I was interested in journalism. He talks about this uh, internship program at the Miami Herald. And then he says, oh, but I think you have to be 16. I was 14. I'm like, good, because I'm not old enough. And um, he went back to the Miami Herald and he actually called my teacher and said, hey, I just learned that we are accepting new applicants for a new class of interns. Can you bring that young lady down? Uh, my teacher actually drove me to the interview um, in order to, you know, to interview. So right, I go, right. I, I take a spelling and grammar test and I, I go into this little tiny room that's the size of a closet and they ask me some questions. And then I'm still thinking, look, I'm 14. I'm not going to get this. And I, I get the call and I get the offer. And so, uh, you know, I was in ninth grade at Booker T. And then, you know, so while my friends were going to work at Burger King, because at 14, you actually could start working. And sure. we were all working at 14 because, you know, our, our, our parents were, were immigrants. Hey, listen, I was at, um, I was at the Chuck E. Cheese at, at uh, 14 going on 15 working in the kitchen. So <laughs> I'm with you. I feel it. Exactly. So, yeah. So that, that became my, my after school job, working in the Miami Herald Neighbors Northwest office, um, writing the school scene column. Oh, wow. Already, what was that like, man? To to one day open up the newspaper and see your name in in it, and and for your parents. You know, it was. I I remember. I mean, this is around the time my stepdad died, but I remember telling him that I got this job um, at the Miami Herald, and and he was very proud. You know, he was very very, um, you know, proud of that fact. So we weren't in the no crewing and Herald yet, <laughs> so um, era. So so he was very proud. But, you know, when your parents are, are immigrants, you know, they're just struggling. They're just trying to make ends meet. They're just glad that, you know, you're not in trouble. You're not a statistic. I don't know if it if it if it really dawned, you know, on them. You know, it, it was just I mean, I guess in a, for my mom, too. Who cares? She's going to she's going to become a doctor. <laughs> like, OK, I'm just glad she's not working at Burger King. <laughs> So, yeah, so that is, um, I think the tension for her, us came when I had to decide on college. I'm curious then, from just having this little job in school, like, how do you go on and decide that journalism is the career you're going to have? And how did that go over with mom, who was ready, you know, who was awaiting Dr. Charles? Well, I didn't decide. I sort of decided for me. I mean, I my junior year in high school, I went to Miami Jackson Senior High. I went to University of Florida. I did a student science training program. I was really good in science and math. And so when I came back, my fellow journalist at the Northwest Neighbors Office was telling me about the scholarship program at the time. The Miami Herald was owned by Knight Ritter. And 
you know, they were like, listen, they have this minority journalism scholarship, but the biggest benefit was that it provided um, an internship every summer. And then your commitment was you had to work for Knight Ritter for a year. I was under a lot of pressure to apply, but I, I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a doctor. So I'm not interested in applying for a journalism award. And I was applying to other schools. I got a number of offers, free rides at a number of schools. And so my uh, Haitian mother who doesn't drive and started contemplating how far Miami was from University of Florida in a car and was literally going to go get her driver's license after years of being afraid to take the road just so she can come up every weekend and see me. I said, no, this is not going to work. Wow. So, your, mom, your mom was going to get her license just so she could drive up and see you. And that yeah, that was too close for you. <laughs> too, too close. So at this point, sorry, UF, sorry, FIU, sorry, UM. I chose university. I did apply for the Knight Ritter Scholarship. I was the second Miami Herald applicant to, to win the scholarship. So I went to North Carolina Chapel Hill for uh, for four years. I was still pre-med. Um, I was taking these, you know, I worked on the Black Ink, which was a Black student newspaper, news magazine at the school. Oh, you couldn't quit. Um, you couldn't quit the writing. Well, it wasn't about, no, no, no. I, I, I went and introduced myself to Harry Amana, who was a Black professor, only Black professor in a journalism school. And I mentioned to him that I was a Knight Ritter Scholar. He was aware of the program. And he basically said, well, where are you working? Are you the DTH, I said, the Daily Tar Heel? I said, no. Are you doing this? No. And so he was like, okay, if you're going to be a journalism major, which technically I was, you need to be working on somebody's paper to hone your skills while before you can get into the journalism program. Okay, yeah, but I'm still pre-med. And so the turning point for me, actually, was I had a, a, a professor at the J school. I applied, I got in. She wasn't very nice. <laughs> oh. um, and uh, didn't really care for the fact that I had all of this background, you know, working in a professional newspaper um, like the Miami Herald. And so she was pretty hard on me with my assignments. And so I sought out a professor, Chuck Stone, who was a journalist who had written columns to the Philadelphia Daily News, gotten people out of jail with his columns. He's wow. a founder of the National Association of Black Journalists. He's a legend. And he had just joined UNC not long ago. So he became one of two now Black professors at Carolina. And I remember cornering him one day in Lenar Hall in the dining hall. And I said, Professor Stone, I, I really need your help. I say, you know, this professor, she's what she's doing. Could you just please look at my writing and, and, and tell me what's wrong? Should I be doing this? Should I not be doing this? And so he he took my writing that I that I'd given him. And then I saw him a couple of days later and he says, Jackie, you can write. And that was a turning point for me to hear this esteemed, you know, professor basically take what somebody was trying to take away from me and basically said to me, hey, no, you can do this. So all of a sudden you get, you get new dreams. And I think the lesson here is just about exposure. You may think that this is the dream that you want and then you're introduced to something else and you find out like, hey, it's okay to have you know, another dream. I mean, I used to write, I enjoyed writing, but I was really more of a science and math person. But then I realized that I can also do something with that writing. When you write about, you know, a, a mother who's about to lose her, her foster kid and you see the change that that story is able to do, then you say, wow, you know what? This is another way to save a life. 
And what do your parents say today? Are they, as far as your, your career, are they still, your parents still with us? And what have they said about it? It's fine. I think that when she hears these crazy stories about things that have happened to me, like diving under the table from, you know, from bullets, um, you know, bullets, um, you know, on the eve of my birthday, um, while covering the, you know, the assassination of the, of the Haitian president wow. or other incidents. She's like, uh, you didn't tell me about that. I was like, okay, yeah, but why would I tell you? <laughs> like, what were you going to do? <laughs> so you try to sort of, you know, try to limit it. But, you know, so it's a funny story with my mom. My mom is, um, my mom is very old school. And, you know, she's one of these people who probably, you know, doesn't talk much. She has, well, she talks to her friends. Right? So if you want to know how they feel, you got to listen, you got to eavesdrop on their conversation, right? <laughs> and, and in fact, that's how I learned Creole, just by eavesdropping on, on, on her conversation and asking, what's this word? What does that mean? She went to vote a couple of years ago, it was right before COVID, and, and she's in North Miami and somebody's coming up to her. And my mother prides herself on the fact that she, she speaks Creole, but she writes in French. Okay. Hmm. My mother is from very old school in Haiti where, you know, Creole was the language that you spoke with your friends, but French is the language that you speak in school and, and everything. And so, so while she's there, somebody's coming up to her and they're asking her if she, they're assuming that she's illiterate. Okay. And, and, or that she needs some help. So they're hmm. asking her, you know, if, for for help or whatever and she's very offended by this you know first of all i don't read creole i do everything in french and this is in creole you need to give me english so that you know i can do that and then so at one point she's like you don't know who i am i am jacqueline charles's mother <laughs> and it was so funny because she's telling me this story and i'm like oh my god like she doesn't even realize what she's I, i'm like you what you're but but it was her it was her way of saying that you know if Jacqueline Charles is who she is today it's because of me we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back talking with award-winning journalist Jacqueline Charles you can now stay in touch with us via text by joining our Sundial text club send us your thoughts comments or question by texting the word join to 786-677-0767 again that's join to 786-677 0767. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. Jacqueline Charles was a brand new reporter at the Miami Herald, just out of school when she was sent to Haiti almost immediately because a former president was returning after years in exile. The only problem was that Jackie had never been to Haiti without her mom. I asked her to tell me this story. You start working at the Miami Herald, and uh, you get this opportunity to go to Haiti. Uh, I I remember uh, when I was a, a, a young journalist um, at the St. Petersburg Times, which now doesn't exist, there was a Cuban pitcher that had arrived, and he was going to be playing in a game for the first time, and the only person on staff who could speak Spanish and could potentially speak to this guy was the 22-year-old, you know, freshly hired kid out of the University of Florida, and I was the one that they sent, and I was the one that got that story before anybody else. And you, uh, if I'm not mistaken, when you were at the Herald, there is there is word that, uh, that President Aristide, who's been living in exile, re- he was returning to Haiti, and they sent you, right, pretty... Pretty young, pretty still, pretty green. Uh, I was just 
I think two months on the job <laughs> and wow. I get a phone call from Juan Tamayo, who was the um, editor at the time. And he says, Hey, I hear you speak Creole. Yes. Although my mom might disagree with you. <laughs> um, and we, you know, we got a situation in Haiti. We need some bodies and we need you to go to Haiti. So I need you to go to Zaire's, which is the store at the time. I need you to go buy a sleeping bag. I need you to come in here tomorrow, pick up a, a plane ticket, and you're going to go. Literally, I mean, up until that moment, every trip that I had done to Haiti was with my mother as my tour guide, as my guide, as my shut up, don't say anything. They're going to hear your accent, and then they're going to charge you a bunch of money. So here I am. <laughs> you know, I don't even remember how that conversation went to say to my mother, um, listen, they want me to go to Haiti um, because Aristide is going back. Um Somehow the conversation went, I went to Haiti and I, you know, I remember, it's so weird. I, I remember the day that he came and you have to remember, I'm the kid that grew up with like, to be afraid, to be afraid of afraid the of politics, police, no, no, afraid no. of politics. And the police at the time used to wear these like khaki colored, you know, uniforms. Um, and I don't think people really realized the big deal it was when the international community had the police change their uniforms. But um, why, I remember being at why the was that airport. A big deal? Why was because it big... because it's the the uniforms but symbolic of fear. It's the Tantan mm. It was the secret police. It was abuse. It was you know it was everything negative, right? I mean it, it represented the power at the time. So I remember standing there and the and being at the airport. First of all, I'm one of the few black places, and I'm looking around and I see all these white journalists, and they all have on bulletproof vests, and I I did not have on a bulletproof vest. I'm wow. like, why y'all all got on bulletproof vests? What's up? And then I looked out and I saw an Haitian police officer step down and they had like the, the khaki uniform. And I remember my heart just racing a mile a minute. Because you thought Tantan Makut, like that was the... That fear that you grew yeah. up. Suddenly I became that, you know, that five-year-old kid again, you know, where it's like you see it and you're just meant to, you know, to fear. And so, so yes, I, 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 I went there. Um, it was an interesting period because every story that I, I had an idea that I wanted to do, uh, somebody had done it. The reporter who was um, in charge was not initially nice to me. Um, I slept on the floor in a sleeping bag. It was like, look, we need bodies. You know, the, the, the Herald had basically ran through everybody in, in the newsroom or who w was willing to go or who could go to Haiti. Um, and so, you know, it was a situation where we already had, I think, two reporters there. Um, at the time, this was a huge historical event. We don't know what we were going to get. So they just needed a body. Right. And so I became, you know, I became that body. The fact that I spoke Creole meant that there was less money that anybody had to pay because I didn't need to hire a fixer. Um, I, and I think for me is that I created the opportunity, right? And, right. and creating the opportunity is like not getting yourself killed, Um finding something that you can do or some way that you can contribute even after every story I pitch had already been, you know, been done. But, you know, somebody back at the farm basically said, okay, she didn't get killed. She didn't get this. She didn't get that. She held her own. Um, okay. So the next time there's an, another opportunity comes, maybe we'll send her. And so that's what happened. So as the boats will continue to wash up in South Florida, I became the person who would get on the plane, go back to Haiti and retrace the steps 
of, 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 of migrants and tells a story from where they fled, from where, I mean, and that's what journalism is about. It's about your ability to deliver. And so, um, did you, you know, start being, to, did you start to fall in love with, with Haiti and start to like, when did, when did that really, that love affair with the, with the story of Haiti, uh, start with you or is it something that kind of built over time? I realized that my ability to to translate the modern day story of Haiti to the outside world was 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 an asset, and so that is how that became. It's not like you wake up and say, "Oh, I'm gonna you know cover Haiti one day, or I'm gonna do this," but it became something that develops in time in terms of your expertise and and the ability to take all of these experience, having been an education reporter, having been social services, having been the you know writing about Florida politics, Broward County politics being able to take all of that and apply that to a beat that for me on most days is the best beat in America. Why is that? Because right. I'm not a crime reporter. I'm not a just a politics reporter. I'm not just a health reporter. I mean, when you're covering a foreign beat, you're everything. So one day you're writing about politics. The next day you're writing about sanctions. The next day you're writing about assassination. Like There's variety in it. And I've just become at a point in my career. It's not about the, the marquee or the mass head anymore. It's really about are you doing the kind of journalism that you want to do? Are you writing the kind of stories that you want to write? And Haiti is just a country that's rich in stories. Unfortunately, the current situation doesn't always allow for that because you're constantly chasing the news and most often it's bad. But but there are a lot of rich and variety of stories that um, allows you to really hone your skills as a journalist and to really challenge yourself. Jackie, when I think about... Uh... Your reporting, I think of, it's funny, you mentioned Edwidge Danticat, who's uh, one of the foremost uh, Haitian-born writers, a genius grant winter, uh, winner uh, who lives in Miami. And I see you guys almost as bookends, right? Like the fiction and the nonfiction bookends of telling this story in Haiti. Do you ever, uh, do you guys ever talk about um, uh, like how you're able to kind of show a, a different kind of truth in your writing, you know? Um, and and do, do you have any desire to write your own book one day regarding that? Well, it's funny you should use that bookends with, with which because last week I was on a on a panel, a virtual panel, University of the West Indies, and it was a um, University of West Indies in Trinidad, one of you know the the English speaking Caribbean's premier university, and they were having this discussion about Haiti, and so I've Lot Griffith, who's a security expert, former vice provost here at FIU person I respect immensely he opened the conversation by 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 quoting me hmm. um, from my recent assassination project on, on the Haitian president and, and I think he quoted a the historical story that I wrote um, about the project and the fact that we've sort of been here before but this time around will Haiti choose a different path and then he ended the discussion by quoting Edwidge um, Dantica from, from one of her books. And so right after that, I actually called her up. I said, oh, my God, I feel so honored. She says, what do you mean? I said, well, I just got off this panel discussion. And they opened it up by quoting me, but they ended it by quoting you. The fact that, you know, I'm being mentioned um, in the same breath as you. I'm like, oh, my God. So, you know, you have to understand, I I remember reading Edwidge's book, Crick Crack, and um when I first met her, we actually were out on South Beach and believe it, we we're at a club and I started grilling her about this book. And, uh, and you're and at a, a, you're at a club and a perfect time for some book talk. 
no, forget about the book time. This is a perfect time for me to launch my investigation in this book and how this book had to be autobiographical. And this is not a work of, 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 of fiction. And I was just basically like just asking her and just grew because I just remember, you know, being an, a, a child of an immigrant and being an immigrant and reading this book and identifying with this book. And I and I recommend this book and I give it to people all the time, you know, who are who are immigrants or children of immigrants. And so, you know, Edwidge and I are coming from, yes, we're coming from our experiences. They're, they're a life experiences that we have, that we have lived um, as, 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 as children of Haitian parents. Um, and so we, we bring that to the outside world and, and, and we sort of put it into some kind of a context, you know, right. and, and we're in a unique position to kind of open everybody else's eyes um, to what it means to be Haitian, what it means to be a hyphenated Haitian. Um, it's not one experience, it's not one story. Um, it's a complicated story, it's a messy story, but it's also a beautiful story at times. So so that is where, yeah, that's where we come from. And she's definitely one of my sheroes. Um, sheroes, because, I love that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, you know, again, I tell you, I, I read, you know, there's a lot, I've read a lot of books in my life, but I remember, you know, reading Crick Pack and I, Crick, crack and I remember I'm sorry me back up it was not crack it was breath eyes memory you see I, got, I have all of it we just book but the book the, the 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 book that I was grilling her about when I first met her was breath eyes memory and and this is the book that I think is a definitive book for um for, for immigrant stories um and, and immigrant kids just so that they can they can identify with it um crack crack I love crack crack too because it's sort of based on um something that Haitians identify with storytelling but um but yeah so Edwidge is somebody that uh you know I definitely look up to and 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 I think that we are richer you know for her voice um and for her writing I'm I'm curious uh, because you know she's done that with fiction and then what you have done with your nonfiction. there's the thing is with nonfiction is you have to live it as well right you have to live these things and people don't know that like like after you know the the earthquake uh 10 years ago or what have you uh like you're talking with the president of the country on his cell phone uh when there is uh, you know when last year when the when the president was murdered you are you found a way to spirit yourself into the country uh you know you have you have managed to really become um essential in Haiti uh can you tell me what that was like like where where you're like talking on the talking on the phone on the cell phone uh with with the president of the country like shortly after an earthquake you know the day that the earthquake hit i was in the miami herald building and i actually was planning a weekend trip to haiti for a jazz festival um every year haiti has this jazz festival and these people wanted me to come to cover it but i didn't want to go cover a festival that i'd never been to so i'm literally like doing two things i'm, I'm trying to plan a trip I'm trying to get a hold of a friend of mine to see um, if his apartment was going to be available, if he wasn't going to be there that weekend. And at the same time, President Bill Clinton was headed to D.C. to go meet with the IMF because Rene Preval, the president at the time, had gotten himself in trouble because he'd taken out this loan from Venezuela to build this airport in Cape Haitian. So I was actually writing supposed to be reporting on that as well. And then I hear this, this quake happen. Hmm. And you're like, huh, what? And then it's, you know, scramble all hands on deck i had president renee preval's uh cell phone number i'd had it now for a couple of years and i knew when the person gave it to me that i would get only one shot 
with this cell phone and I would only be able to use it in a case of an extreme emergency. At the time, never did I envision that that emergency would be a 7.0 earthquake. Um, I started trying to call. I couldn't get a hold of him. Um, I had a good friend, have a good friend of mine, Cyril Prisoir, who happened to have been just outside of Port-au-Prince and was able to help me by making some calls. And then um, I'm still trying to get a hold of the president. At the time, Ralph Latratou, who's the consul general in Miami, he's spoken to the first lady. She said, tell Jacqueline to call. And I'm trying to call, like everybody else <laughs> trying to call in Haiti, you, you can't. And so we had chartered a plane where my one-way seat was $3,000, literally. And the pilot, though, did not want to fly into Haiti without permission. He didn't know he was going to be shot down or anything. And so, you know, we're at the Opelika airport and I'm still trying to get a hold of the president. I have my Blackberry. And so I call and the, line, and the call goes through and he answers and he's literally stepping over dead bodies oh at the God. Haitian parliament at the time when I'm talking to him. And I just remember him saying, when are you coming? When are you coming? The country is destroyed. Wow. And I said, when you give me permission, he says, permission, come, you have my permission. And so right there, you know, we, I, I called the Herald, let them know there was the um, ticker at the bottom of, of CNN, you know, quoting the Miami Herald because President Ray, uh, Rene Preval took a nap every day around four o'clock, which most people didn't know. And I knew this because I, you know, I knew his, his schedule and, and his habits. And that particular day, he had not taken a nap because they were going to um, uh, an event, I think, a, a graduation or something. And so his wife, they were going to go. And then she looked at her legs and said, you know what? I need to go get some pantyhose. So she said, let's go home, <laughs> <laughs> Renee. But going home to go get pantyhose is probably what saved his life because wow. the palace collapsed. And so when they got to their house, it, as they pulled up in the yard, that's when the house also collapsed. And wow. so, and I'm, and I was able to get those details because I got the only interview with him um, right after all of this, you know, all of this happened. And, and let me just say this is that I want to set the record straight historical wise, you know, a lot of foreign journalists went into Haiti, literally parachuted in, um, didn't realize that the palace had collapsed, went to the palace to try to find the president, didn't see the president, um, didn't know where the government was. When I got to Haiti, I walked into the entire government. They were on the tarmac, right? They were there. They were, you know, waiting for the place. I asked somebody, where are you guys setting up camp? They told me where. But the stories that kept coming up was how the government was absent. The government wasn't there. And it wasn't true. But, you know, when you go to a place and you don't know what's happening, so all the Haitian journalists, we were we were always over at the police station where the president was and where the government was. And all the foreign journalists were parked at the airport. And so you would never see the two come together. I remember Hillary Clinton giving a press conference and people from State Department looked around and realized there were no Haitian journalists there. Huh. And they went over to the police station to go get some of the Haitian journalists to come there on the tarmac you know, to hear this Hillary Clinton, you know, press release. But my experience as somebody who had been covering Haiti now for a long time at that moment was President Rene Preval was the most vocal and the most accessible that he had ever been. This is a president who, yes, he didn't like to talk. Um, you know, he was more of a somebody, I'd rather, you know, let my actions speak for themselves. But but he would come out, you know, and he would talk to you and, and, he, and right there, impromptu 
press conferences or, or what have you. And we all had access to them. So the story, the narrative that was emerging internationally, um, it's not what we were experiencing, you know, inside the country. But those are the things that get lost. And so that's my benefit, right? When you cover when you cover the country, you understand the the the, the culture, you understand the nuance. Um, people hate you for it sometimes because you know you're you're bringing things publicly that people don't always want to have public. But at the same time, you're able to put things into a different perspective. And that's what makes our coverage in the Miami Herald different. Right. Like you're, you're able to tell the different sides of it. I'm, I'm curious what it's been like for you. I mean, to, to have like, to literally have the, the former president say, you know, Bill Clinton say Jackie is Haiti's ambassador to the world to have the, to be able to be on the, on the phone with, with presidents over the years. Like what does that meant to you to be able to catalog to catalog a country and catalog their their ups and downs, like you said, the uh, uh, paint it, paint the paint them warts and all, as the saying goes. You know, I'm a history buff, right? I've mm. always enjoyed history. Um, I'm fascinated by 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 history, and you know, as journalists, we are recorders of history. We don't think about it sometimes because we're just you know go go go, and we're just you know running to the next story, doing this, doing that. But, you know, in those moments where you just kind of stop and, and think about it, it's like, wow, you're, you're living this historical moment. You are literally on the front line of this moment. And because of where you're seated, you have a different viewpoint. You're seeing things differently. And, you know, one of the frustrations that I always get is that, you know, people you know, they will talk to you about something as if they were there. Like hmm. you, you, you can't reason with them and you cannot tell them. Um, that was not the case. You know, people believe in conspiracy theories at time and they'll tell you that, you know, two plus two equals five and not four. And, and so sometimes you can get very frustrated, especially if you're someone like me that deals with logic. I mean, my job as a journalist is not to be a cheerleader, to be objective and to tell the news. And not everybody understands that. And so you're constantly, for at least for me, I mean, my battle is always like not trying to show my hand. I'm not going to let you know where I feel or whatever I stand. And, and the challenge for every journalist and the benefit is always, you know, to be open minded. You may think you know what's going on or you may have an opinion personally about something but it's to walk into that room to talk to everybody that you need to talk to and to allow yourself to accept a different viewpoint than what you thought going in that's when you've done your job but if you sure. go into a room and you hear something that completely challenges your theory of what happened or what's going on and you continue to ignore that and go with what you initially thought then you have not done your job as a journalist and that's where people lose their you know their trust in, in the, the public trust in this institution that was award-winning journalist Jacqueline Charles one of the world's leading experts on Haiti and the Caribbean and that's sundial for Wednesday December 21st Leslie Ovalle Atkinson is our lead producer Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor our engagement editor is Katie Lepre Cohen our digital editor is Mateos Sanchez. Katie Munoz is our interim managing editor. And senior news editor is Jessica Bakeman. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundial's engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this episode. Search WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we hear from a group of unlikely Christmas elves who decorate a lonely pine tree on the old Seven Mile Bridge to Key West. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening.